Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. Make sure to subscribe to the Ringer's YouTube channel to watch the newest episode of Slow News Day with Kevin Clark featuring NFL MVP Lamar Jackson. And in anticipation of the NBA's return in late July, NBA Desktop with Jason Concepcion is back to posting weekly episodes. Also up on our YouTube channel are the best clips taken from this week's Bill Simmons podcast, Three Watchables, and Higher Learning with Rachel Lindsay and Van Lathan. You can find all these videos at youtube.com slash The Ringer. People are telling me it just might be a good year for the port. Who the fuck is you? He's going to ask us that like we don't know. He's going to ask his own question. English, motherfucker! Y'all making friends in a lot of places, right? We're friendly guys. Spread the word, dog. I'm an XL. Four more back. I've been waiting on this episode, man. Been waiting. I, yeah. I gave everybody a warning when we discussed episode two of season two of The Wire that the Thor hammer was coming out in this one on Stringer Bell. Me and Air. Me and Air. <laughs> but I, not yet. Not yet. Uh, we are now into episode three, Hot Shots, season two of The Wire. Um, much like it, it happened in, in season one, the wire slowly builds the tension, slowly builds um, all the intricate scenarios that the characters uh, have to deal with, the tough choices. They so slowly start to bubble. And, um, you know, already we see some people being backed into some corners. And so this is more of sort of setting setting the stage. It, it, I think I thought that this, this season two, much like I did season one, and I don't know, if you find this, but the more times you rewatch the wire, does it move faster for you every time you watch it? Does. It does. Okay. Yeah, it, it, like, I don't it, know why it, that is. At first it seemed like the show kind of droned on a little bit and you had to hang on everything. Now it seems like bang, 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 bang. I think once you understand the way the story is constructed, every scene has its own little pacing and you have to kind of stay with it. So it's moving a little fast. Yeah. I, I was thinking I was watching this is that, um, the the part of I mean a lot of things make the wire brilliant, but I think it's inability to get in and out of storylines and jump from one to the other. Yeah. And even though yeah, and even though the name of this one is called Hot Shots, uh, because that's uh, you know that's something that you don't even hear. Not that every episode they they say it, uh, they say what the episode title is. We saw that in Collateral Damage, where Lester actually says that they're collateral damage. And this one, the term Hot Shots isn't actually used to almost the very end. Right. Uh, of it when the prisoners uh, who have overdosed, um, which I'll explain at the moment how how that happened, where it's sort of said at the end. But I am, as always, just really all taken aback by how many different storylines they're able to cover with just one or two scenes in one episode. And so this one, you have this new cast that people are still getting used to, them kind of more active, and then you still have the old cast. So it's like David Simon is trying to basically tell they're both they're both interwoven they're both related and that relation kind of picks up as the series goes along or the season rather goes along but he's he's trying to tell two different stories at once like he's trying to tell the story of the sabakas and the story of what's happening with the barksdales at the same time right and normally that would be a recipe for disaster but i think he actually pulls it off and i hope i'm not i just don't have my fan blinders on right now but this is to me this is an interesting way to kind of do a dual narrative 
And season two is actually the first season where we see that, but we see that in every subsequent season of The Wire. We see, uh, we see things that kind of intertwine. You know, we see this with the politics in the street, the politics, you know, so we see things that kind of intertwine, um, get kind of thrown in the same gumbo, but the taste is still amazing. That was and a Louisiana like, reference and that counts. Uh, Van, I just, I just want uh, yeah, you to know that. Yeah. So if everybody didn't is. know, Van is from Louisiana. <laughs> I'm Baton Rouge, Louisiana. What's the show? Um, and so, yeah. And so in, in this particular you know, they're not going to bring you back for at least for a while into a place to where these two different worlds, what's happening at the port um, and what's happening on the streets and now in the prisons as well. They're not going to reconcile themselves for a little while, but they will, as everything does uh, in the wire, eventually reconcile themselves. So the main nuggets um, or the main nugget, I'll just keep it the one that I, I picked up out of this. And, and this is why not, this is something I mentioned in our last podcast episode is I think it was a, a smarter decision to tell the story of Baltimore through class versus race because the race was going to be there. And I'm not saying that class, that class is more important. You know, I know some people feel very strongly about that. But this was a brilliant way to tell the story because the desperation is what we see that's starting to come through for some of the characters. And I, that's exactly what I have written down. Yeah. You couldn't be more right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, this, I think, and we're, we can get into this a little bit later because there's one particular observation that I make uh, when Nikki is kind of um, frustrated about the lack of work that he's receiving and some things that he says that, kind of hint at what we've seen in the class and racial struggle. But what you find is when you tell the story through class that you realize that the differences racially are not really that different in terms of what motivates people to survive. Mm -hmm. Right. And right now, um, you know, Nikki and your boy Ziggy, your favorite, they're both motivated to survive. And it's amazing how those motivations are very similar to what we've seen among a lot of the black characters in this show, the difference is how they rationalize their desperation. Mm -hmm. And they rationalize it in a way to always try to distance themselves from what they actually are. The one thing I can appreciate to some degree about the the Barksdale element that was introduced and even all the, the entire universe around their organization, whether you were part of it or just kind of were in the way of it or collateral damage from it, those characters accepted who and what they are. It yeah. is what it is. Yeah. These characters, what makes it more fascinating is that they don't really accept the fact that they ain't shit. It's like they have to slowly come to it. And even when they slowly come to it, they're like, oh, yes, perhaps I'm really not shit in doing yeah. this. Um, because, you know, Nikki goes from, for example, from being somebody who is not going to, he doesn't want to get into the drug business with Ziggy. And he's like, nope, that ain't going to be me. But tell you what I will do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, still a, I'll still a can and we right. can make some quick money and do it that way because that, that's less offensive to him. Mm -hmm. And, and I, look, I know, you know, all sins are not created equal. So I'm not trying to say that. But he would never look at himself as a criminal. You know right. what I mean? And so that's what makes that, you know, really an interesting dynamic that I feel like uh, Simon has done a really good job of, of kind of keeping... Um, you know, going with a constantly hammering on class in this particular season. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that in that scene, some of the one of the scenes, some of the words that 
uh, Sabaka chooses to use kind of shows that no matter what he doesn't have, and I know you're going to talk about it, so I'm not going to give it away. No matter what he doesn't have, there's still a level that he doesn't view himself as. Now, remember, you have to get into the mind of somebody that's frustrated with how life is at the port right now. They've always looked at a structure that supported them. There have been unions to support them. There's been work to support them. And now what happens when all of these things that were there to make uh, a couple of generations of, of, of port workers, of dock workers, to give them that security, once they're gone, now what do you do? Now, once you're transported to how the other half lives. Now, as far as West Baltimore, whatever was sustaining those communities, they're a generation, two generations into having those things been gone, right? So, so they've already adapted. The new economy that has come in is heroin and, and cocaine. And so they've adjusted to that new economy. And now that you're there, you have a choice whether or not you become a customer of that economy a seller of that economy or an observer, but everyone has to make a decision. I think watching uh, Sabaka, um, uh, Nick, Nick, Nikki Sabaka, and watching Ziggy have to make that decision at the flashpoint moment that they're seeing that their structure is coming to an end is fascinating because it, we think that these decisions were made independently. That someone woke up and said, "You know what." Scarface looks cool. I'm going to be Tony Montana. That's normally not the way that happens. Well, the way that happens is you need something. You can't get it this way, but you can get it that way. And whatever the that way is, is what you have to be comfortable with. And in watching that scene, what you're watching Nikki say is, listen, I have a girl that wants this. I want this. And what do I have at the port? One day a week. Sometimes. So how am I going to get it? Wells is out there for me to get it. Like, if Best Buy ain't hiring, you got to go to the street. And so when seeing him go to the street, it's sort of giving us almost a prequel of decisions that might have been made 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago in West Baltimore. They're now having to be made on the docks. It ties the two characters in uh, in terms of the trajectory that we're going to see Sabaka and Ziggy take. But the interesting thing is that the Barksdale family and the Sabaka family, aside from, you know, money, because uh, the Barksdale family probably has a little bit more more of it. They both they're both kind of cousins or parallels in this because, you know, Nikki and Ziggy have both been born into a family, much like D'Angelo was. Uh-huh. And anybody who's a Barksdale, they've been born into a family where the expectation is that you do this. The expectation right. is that you become a port worker right. and that's what you do. You work on the docks um, and part of the disappointment, the frustration and even the anger that Nikki and Ziggy both have is that they feel like they've been born into something that's not sustainable, which yeah. was D'Angelo's frustration when yeah. he talked to, um, you know, when he was sitting down in the, in the interrogation room and he talked about not being able to breathe and how, how many generations of his family have been in the drug trade to the point where it has suffocated him so much. So they've both been born into something that they have no control over that's dying. Uh, right. In the Barksdale case, it's literal. You literally will die the longer that you are in it. Yeah. And in their case, it's their part of a dying breed, and they find themselves on the outside in a way that they were not prepared to happen. 
mean, we've mm-hmm. seen that happen. It's such a, you know, I mean, if we want to talk about, um, you know, the best reflection of real life, it's really this because of what has happening, what has happened to a lot of manufacturing cities in America and how they've gone bone dry. They've been replaced by automation. Yeah. And people who have come up in these towns where that was the only industry where they have generations and generations of their family who have worked on these docks and done this kind of work. And they feel like that that's going to be their future too. And then they get into it and they realize it's not. And so they feel like they've been told a lie, like, Oh, I thought this was supposed to be waiting and it was never waiting for them. And now they're forced to on the fly, think of how to reinvent themselves and what better way to reinvent yourself quickly other than becoming a criminal crime. Yeah. It's always there for you. It's if you always wanna, there for you. Crime and the decisions, the, the the decision to come to a life of crime normally takes a lot of things into consideration. So we're seeing it happen with these guys right there. And it's it's breaking it down on a human level, which is what The Wire does so well. Yeah. Let's get into the recap here. Um, as we, we just talked about that frustration and being a part of a dying industry. And so because... He's frustrated by his lack of work. Nikki decides it's a very pivotal decision. Uh, he decides that he's going to go in uh, with Ziggy and sell some hot cameras. <laughs> they took a can, got some hot electronics that they're going to sell to Double G, um, who is an associate of the Greek Evandis, who does OK the transaction, which I believe netted them 20 grand, um, which I was thinking about that. Like, man, considering how much they plan to make off of that was that really a good deal i feel like they should have got more than 20 i know they angled for more than 20 it was interesting to me like i don't know how that works they tried to get more than two but like it seems like they did they took a lot of risk and did a lot of work to get for back the money grand? that they got yeah yeah but i mean who I, knows? I, I, I don't know look, i like everybody now what's gonna happen now is gonna be a bunch of people that hit me up in my dms van you don't know how that gang go brother what happens is you get 28 percent on that man that's a good take you don't know what they need to have me on the podcast no i don't know dog what i'm saying is it just seemed like i'll be asking for a little bit more if i stole the whole fucking thing but whatever that's what i'm saying and, and yeah. granted i know i just sounded real sedity by kind of turning my nose up at 20 grand i'm not saying that but i'm i'm calculating you know what? I'm calculating risk Maserati. versus reward. <laughs> risk yeah. versus reward. Like, you. yeah. <laughs> we went to a restaurant. White Tile, y'all see Jamel pull up on y'all. Jamel got a Maserati. <laughs> I like, I like, I'm saying, we, we all leave real quick. We all leave the restaurant. Um, I'm going, you know, because it's those people getting dropped off. It was some other famous people at this restaurant or whatever. I know we talked about this. I go to get into my poor mobile and my, my, my Honda Accord Cross Tour. And I see the valet bring out a Maserati. I'm thinking, damn, man, what the? What, 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 I mean, who's here? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger here? Or like, what's going on? All of a sudden, Jamil, uh, Jamil, run, run, like, out of here. Don't treat let her yourself. fool you. You got to treat yourself, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't see anything wrong with one thing themselves. You do your thing, <laughs> sister. You're right. I, and right. I, I didn't have to sell a bunch of hot cameras off a container. Exactly. Uh, even better. So uh, we have Nikki now going from, you know, his brief show of what he's not going to be involved in. And I know it's not drugs. So all of a sudden he's like, all right, I'm a criminal now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Valchek realizes he's been had by Burel Purell. Burel Burel. Purell Burel. Prez hips him to the fact that he was only being patronized and he got a shitty detail that has zero interest in doing any real police work. And this get this sets Valchek on fire, and he checkmates Purell Burel. 
Uh, Omar's got a new crew. <laughs> got a new crew on out there. Um, but he's still up to his old tricks. Got a new boo, too. Yeah. 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 And Dante. Added, yeah, Dante. Uh, and they've added a little wrinkle. Got two female hitters. Mm-hmm. So diversified. Representation matters. All right. Uh, it's going down in their crew. Um, and Avon continuing to call the shots from jail. Takes care of Weebay's little issue with the corrections officer. In true ruthless Avon fa- uh, fashion. Um, you know, gets Stringer and some Barksdale goons to sit on Tillman. The correction officers sit on him and they discover that he's been funneling drugs through another new face that we meet. Blind Butchie. Yes. It, yes, Blind Butchie into the prison. Uh, and Stringer pays Blind Butchie a visit. Gets Butchie to give Tillman a bad batch of drugs that lead to several prisoners overdosing. And D'Angelo, who it looks like that they were kind of coming to some kind of, you know, you know, they were reconciling. Avon and D'Angelo reconciling in the library. And he's giving them this talk about family. He knows he's been using drugs. They don't sell drugs to D'Angelo. And it turns out maybe that wasn't really about family. It was about the fact that Avon needed to alleviate a problem for his boy, Weebay. So that's where we are right now in episode three, Hot Shots. But we're going to jump into one particular character that we mentioned a lot. But now it's time to do a deep dive on him. Frank Sabaka. People are telling me it just might be a good year for the port. Might be. You all have been stepping up in a lot of ways. Hope it continues like that. Y'all making friends in a lot of places, right? We're friendly guys. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I noticed about Frank, and this feels weird to say about somebody, especially because we sort of know, obviously we've seen this series, so we know what becomes of Frank Sabaka. And for that matter, even even if you have it, even if you don't know what the future of Frank Sabaka is, you know up to this point, that whatever he's been doing in on that dock has led to 14 dead women. So you know at least that much. He's involved in something that is shady. But that being said, even though it's misguided, even though he makes a bunch of wrong decisions to try to preserve something that can't be preserved, the one thing you can say about Frank Sabaka, much like Daniels, is he is down for his dudes. He is mm-hmm. all about that union to the detriment of his family, Uh, to the detriment of a lot of things, but he truly does care about the livelihood of what he does. And for that matter, the men who have been doing it for generations. And so from that standpoint, I find myself having kind of a weird respect for Frank Sabaka. I do as well. Um, the, the, he, he, he exists as both, uh, criminal slash villain. Um, but also, uh, every man slash cautionary tale. Um, he's an everyman because Frank Sabaka is in a position that he was both uh, involuntarily casted into, uh, but also probably jumped at the opportunity to be in. Uh, this is both the life that he was thrust into and the life that he wanted, um, which is a, makes him a, a very fascinating character because he's benevolent. You know, there's a scene in this show where a guy says he's going to leave and go to another union. He's not getting enough work. Frank says, you know, take this money, go have uh, a beer on me. And he goes there and there's a stack of cash waiting for him. Now, obviously, he doesn't want to lose the numbers from his union. uh, But at the same time, he wants those guys that work on those docks to be able to go and provide for their family. He cares about that. He's doing this uh, out of a, a sense of more than just who he is. This is a sense of what he represents 
uh, what 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 uh, the community comes from and how he wants them to be able to thrive. Anytime any character cares about something that's more than themselves, it's going to be difficult to hate that character, no matter what they do for it. I think about Man of Steel. If you watch Man of Steel, right? Zod in that movie, it could be argued that Zod is not a villain. Now, in the original Superman trilogy, Zod comes down, says he wants to destroy everything, kill Superman, subjugate the Earth, clear-cut villain thing, that's a bad guy. In Man of Steel, it's different. In Man of Steel, Zod believes he is tasked to keep the Kryptonian race alive. So in order for him to keep the Kryptonian race alive, he's got to take the world engine and create the Kryptonian race, unfortunately, on planet Earth. It's when you look at him and you see him, you see a character that's doing something out of a sense of duty that's greater than um, himself. So while he is a villain to us, he is a hero to himself. That is kind of how Frank Sabaka is. He is a villain to us from the outside to a degree as we watch him do illegal things. We watch some of the decisions that he makes uh, actually end up hurting people. 14 girls got killed because of something that Frank Sabaka is in the middle of, which is obviously bad. But he is actually a heroic figure because the men, and not just them, but the families that depend on those men, uh, have chicken in the freezer, have... Uh, uh, Pap's Blue Ribbon, Miller, Miller Genuine Draft in the icebox because of Frank Sabaka. So whatever happens in this season, whatever happens in this series to Sabaka, it's very difficult to look at him as anything other than a flawed and sort of tragic hero. Well, one, I don't appreciate the disrespect to Pap's Blue Ribbon because Pap's yeah. Blue Ribbon is right. actually sure. a good beer. Okay. I'm I'm just telling you, yeah. it, like no, no hate for MGD. You can give that all the disrespect it deserves. It. Right. Paps with ribbon, sneaky good cheap beer, sneaky good. Okay, okay. Man's um, <laughs> like, I don't believe you, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> that's yeah. all right, man. That's all right. Uh, I know, I get it. It's the reason why at every bar it's two dollars per can. But trust me, it's not that bad. Um, no, I mean he is he is about preserving, uh, kind of their way of life that they've grown, you know, accustomed to. But I think there's a, a sense of fear in doing that because, you know, part of the reason why I think he clings so hard and so desperately and makes all these really bad decisions to cling some cling to something, he's trying to fix something that is unfixable. He's trying to hold on to something that he cannot grasp because evolution, there's nothing he could do about it. And in a way, it's kind of sad to see him continually just blow up his life by doing things to preserve what is only at this point an ideal and a fantasy in his head because no, ma no matter yeah. how much he pays a lobbyist and they pay quite a pretty penny no matter how much drugs that he uh, or girls or whatever other items that the Greeks want him to help bring in to the city of Baltimore that ain't gonna stop them condos from being built That's, they're gonna get built progress is marching right over your head Thank you. I was like, it's not going to stop any of that. So you see a man sort of desperately and in a very futile way, um, you know, kind of cling to something. What's really interesting is that you look at the relationship that he has with Ziggy and for that matter with Nikki. Right. And I think if they're his biggest flaw and his biggest fault is that his obsession with this union 
has cost him his son. And he doesn't realize how much it's cost him that. Because there's a scene in this episode, basically at the at the very end, when after they made the big score with the cameras, you know, presumably Ziggy, Ziggy has a pos- uh, pocket full of money. It's been a good day for him. He didn't work and he made probably more money than he's seen in a minute. And he looks over and the, the guy that you mentioned that picked up the cash from the bar yeah. that was slid to him from Frank Sabaka, the look on his face of like hurt, anger, disappointment is so real because it isn't about in that moment. What that's about is the fact that the kindness that Frank Sabaka showed a perfect stranger was more than he'd received Yeah, as his son. He couldn't have gotten that from him. No, he couldn't. And he's been obviously struggling. Yeah. Right. And he knows he could never go to his dad and say, Hey, I'm thinking about, um, well, one, he wouldn't be switching unions. I'm sure that that shit ain't going to fly, but just, needing something that his father is more there for his union than he is for his own son. And that's why I totally understand your disdain for Ziggy, but I have a small bit of empathy for him because of that broken relationship with him and his father. Yeah, I get it. I think also another thing I played there is that Ziggy just had a moment where he's on top of the mountain. He's done something good uh, for him at least. And here he is at the bar listening to somebody tell him how awesome his father is again. It's probably a big sort of uh of 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 albatross hanging around his neck. Big I mean, shoes it's definitely a little fill. envy there. I mean, not, yeah, not a little. Sure. I think it's a lot of envy there. Yeah, and I think that um, you know, while the guy was someone who worked with his father in the union, I think that if Ziggy had gone to his dad and asked for that same type of deal, even if he did get the money, he would have gotten um <laughs> a heaping full of uh, a judgment that goes along with it. Um, and that sort of explains why he acts out, why there's no security, why he's insecure. And you look at somebody like Frank, anytime you have a man, we've seen this played out on so many different shows. This is a theme that comes into the Sopranos. Uh, you know, Tony Soprano loses a connection with his son, doesn't have a great connection with his son. Um, because really, when you think about it, Tony Soprano has a lot of sons. He has a lot of uh, 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 males who are subordinate to him that he has to look after and make sure they're doing okay. And those guys also put money back in his pocket so that he can then take care of his son. And the way that he does it is kind of in the same way, giving him everything he wants. You know, they the, in the very first episode of the show, they say that Ziggy's not actually fired when Sabaka says that he's fired because that's his father. So that shows you that at least at some point, Frank Sabaka, for all of the other things we're talking about him, has been something of a soft touch with his son. Um, And it's interesting when guys like that who are, you know, we see this all the time, these big-time Hollywood people that have these kids that are wild and out of control, they're crazy, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of times that's because, you know, guys, parenting is hard. And it's a full-time job that takes an inordinate amount of energy and you have to care about it in order to do it in a way that produces good human beings. Um, and I'm not saying that Sabaka didn't do that. I'm just saying in this particular situation, a lot of Ziggy's uh, character flaws and deficiencies, you know, they're clear daddy issues. Oh, Clear no daddy issues, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and the softness that he has uh, as it relates to his son is also why Ziggy is 
incompetent. I mean, right. to be honest, is that maybe even though Ziggy is not by any means rich or he is not, you know, he's struggled to have steady work just like Nikki has. The truth of the matter is that maybe had Frank let him fail a little bit more, he might be a, a, a much better critical thinker. But because yeah. he's always used to having his mess cleaned up or always used to having some kind of landing spot, that allows him to be reckless. Yeah. And it, you combine that with his insecurity and his desire, misguided desire to try to uh, equal his dad in terms of respect, stature, uh, just the way he's perceived. Like he's trying to be his father. He's trying to be better than his father because I imagine most young men want to be better, not just the equal to. He's trying to be the man that he is, but be it in a different way. And all of that is driving him to continually to make, uh, you know, these really dumb decisions. And I think the cherry on top for Ziggy is the fact that Frank Sabaka treats his cousin more like a son than he treats his actual son. Yeah. Because yeah. he sees but, the promise in Nikki and he yeah. sees... That like this is a guy who can lead and even the associate of Spiros in the Greek, when he was talking about him to Spiros, he was like, yeah, the the one he's like, Sabaka's son is a, is a fucking moron. That's pretty much yeah. what he said. He's like, but the other guy is smart. Who brought them in? Young Stevedore, Nico. And that idiot cousin of his with the boots on. I'm going to use more pop culture examples. You ready for them? All right. I'm Number ready. one, another one from The Sopranos, the relationship between Tony Soprano and Christopher Moltisanti yes. as it relates to Tony and his son. Totally. Christopher Moltisanti, protege. Protege, sometimes Trump's son. Give you another mafia movie, mafia related, more so mob. Road to Perdition. If you remember in Road to Perdition. Paul Newman, the way he treated uh, Tom Hanks versus Daniel Craig versus Daniel Craig. You have the the sort of mentor, sort of uh, son, uh, inherent clash that goes on, right? Because normally, normally when you have a protege, the reason why you have a protege is because you see something of yourself in that protege. And that makes you say, this person can do what it is that I do. And when you see anytime an alpha male, I hate that term, or the guy at the tip of the spear like that, sees someone younger coming along that they feel like could be the next them, they lean into that. And if that person's not your son, then it's just not your son. And that's probably the situation that's going on between Nikki Sabaka and Ziggy and Frank Sabaka. Frank, because he's a little bit more hands-off with Nikki, Nikki had a different situation, sees a little bit more of the hustle that he had at that age in Nikki than he does in Ziggy. And it just also shows you something else. That there's an archetype to these sort of uh, a number one male type guys, and they're blind spots. And in the course of Frank Sabaka's life, those blind spots have really, in a way, been exploited by organized crime figures like the Greek and Spiros, so that they can get what they want out of him and give him what he has to have in order for all of that other stuff to exist. Those guys are cunning when they see men who actually are true believers. Something that's a true believer is somebody who's supposed to be incorruptible, but actually the easiest thing there is to corrupt is a true believer because they truly care about what it is that they say they care about. And because of that, they're almost willing to do whatever has to be done in order to make sure that they get to the end. Well, that that's why I said Frank is his real allegiance is not to facts is to an ideal. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Because if it were to facts, then he would understand that 
him, his illegal activity is is literally not going to stop what's coming. But yeah. he is so caught up and loyal to the ideal of what he used to do or what the union used to be that he can't really get off of that. But, you know, I imagine that uh, it's it's difficult because then you have to also deal with the reality of its erosion. And that's not easy for him to face because it's been so that the port and the docks and and that lifestyle has been I mean, that's his DNA. That's all he knows. So he's not going to give that up very easily uh, to accept another and different, you know, reality. But I mean, again, it's hard not to respect the loyalty he has to it and the loyalty he has to uh, his men. But I just think it's such a gaping hole with how he treats uh, his own uh, family. Um, As uh, we mentioned, but just want to recap the people you meet in this episode, blind butchie who becomes, who's like, he's like an impartial consigliere of Baltimore. Yeah. Right. That's what he's kind of supposed to be. Um, And uh, you know, he's got the parlay spot where the East, East siders and West siders can both equally come. (laughs) You know, everybody can get a, a meeting with butchie. And uh, you have uh, Kimmy and Tasha, who are the new two young ladies, a part of Omar's uh, widening and expanding crew, much to Dante's dislike. Um, uh, Dante, another Law & Order SVU alum, by the way, play Ice T's son. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. See, look, one of these days, man, you're going to get in. Law & Order SVU, I'm convinced that you could, you know, you heard of the Kevin Bacon game, right? course okay you could do that with law and order svu everybody and their mama has been on law and order svu the show's been running since 1713 of course <laughs> of, of, of course all of Magna Carta been on. Was yeah. law and order svu <laughs> yeah the show's been running for, for of course they've everybody's been on it man <laughs> all right uh yeah let's uh run through some of our best scenes and, and favorite moments from this episode uh we were since we were talking about the sabakas when uh, Nikki was getting his hair cut by his baby mama, Amy, and she was like, you want some purple in it? And he's like, yeah, and right after that, I'll just go ahead and stick my tongue up some guy's ass. Damn, dog. That. Way to bring a missile launcher to a rock fight. Right. <laughs> like, was it As- like, all right, dog, you okay? I- I'm not going to lie. I howled and You laughed out loud on that one? Oh, my God. Like, like he's so, like... For the toxic masculinity, I know it was so just like dude. funny. Like he's like he was he was angry with her. He had that one <laughs> saved in drafts, as they say. What were some of the the best things and favorite moments for you? Oh my god! Okay, uh, so I love the the scene where uh, Jimmy gets played by Bunk and Lester. I think that's the best scene in this episode. He's gonna ask us that like we don't know. He's gonna answer his own question, saying the swabs are negative, right? Fuck or fight with all them sailor boys. And she fought. So, got a little rough. She gets banged around. She comes up dead. And then somebody panics, tosses her in the harbor overnight before the ship ties up. But the other girl saw. So now the other girls, they get told to get back in that can. And our man, to cover this shit up, he gets up on top, bangs down the air pipe. Because remember now, Jimmy thinks he's the smartest, but Bunk and Lester are just as good. Uh, so when he comes in, he's got all these revelations about things that have gone on. Um, uh, I, and and Bunk and Lester just play him to the nth degree. It shows so much about who he is, so much about who they are, because they could have easily been like, no, 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 no. We got this, blah, blah, blah. They didn't. 
Nope. They they played it as smooth, as suave, um, as two cognac. And then, and then to even bring Beatty into it, she's a she's a newbie, right? Yeah. And she's like, right. oh, I see how this game is going, and she slides right in. Now, mm-hmm. I, I that begs a question, Van. I, I this is I I need your I need your honest, honest, honest answer on this. Mm-hmm. What is the better detective duo? Is it McNulty and Bunk? Or Bunk and Freeman. It's Bunk and Freeman. <laughs> it, it, it is. It's, 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 bunk, it's Bunk and Freeman. It's Bunk and Freeman because, I mean, we've seen Jimmy and Bunk do some incredible work. But, like, Bunk and Freeman, to me, have more complementary styles together. And Jimmy's too much of a maverick. He's not a natural collaborator like it, like it is with, with, uh, with Bunk and Freeman. Um, now... Socially, it's Jimmy and Bunk, and we're going to see the future. Socially, it's Jimmy and Bunk, for sure. But as far as just straight-up detective work, I think that Bunk and Freeman, if you look at the way way they see a case, the way they feel a case, kind of the rhythms that they have, and think about how they haven't been together that long, and think about how they already rock, and it was pretty natural. I'm going to go ahead and go with Bunk and Freeman. Well, they say styles make fights. Right. right. That's 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 the that's the old adage. But as much as I want to agree with you um, and, uh, you know, if you I'm sure if you gave him if you could clone Bunk and put him with both and gave him a, a crime or gave him these 14 Jane Doe's and said, OK, which one of y'all will will get to the bottom of it quicker? Would not be surprised if that was Freeman and Bunk. However, that being said, Freeman and uh, or Bunk and McNulty. Remember, these they pulled off the fuck scene in season they one. Did. They did just communicating on one word. Right. They were able to put together a crime uh, or put together what happened in this particular crime that had not been cleared by the by the police department. And you have to. There's something. It's just like the playoffs, man. It's experience. Experience matters, and their experience together, I think, could compensate for the fact that. I think generally Freeman is a smarter detective than McNulty and he has uh, such a devotion to the details, whereas McNulty can get a little bored with that kind of stuff, even though he can, he's very, he's very quick witted. He's got a quick brain so he can look at a situation very fast and like kind of deduce what's going on. Um, But I'm going to, I'm going to go with McNulty and Bunk. I think they're the better, I think they're the better duo. I'm going to be honest with you. I really feel like the better duo is whatever duo that Freeman is on. Oh, you, oh. Well, like, really, to be a really Because he's your you, Kawhi, right? Freeman, the best detective in the history of the show. Freeman, is, like, Freeman and Randall, the medical examiner, have the best minds. And so I think that Bunk meshes better with Freeman. But look, what, what, what it is, is this is kind of a, which duo do you like better? This is Jordan and Pippen, Shaq and Kobe. You know what I mean? This is kind of whatever your style is. They both are in the triangle, but we it's differences. So, you know, it's it's, it's kind of whatever you want with it. But I, I feel what you're saying. I personally take Lester. Right. Lester Le- Freeman. Le- Lester is the difference maker. All right, what other scenes uh, did you like? So, I like the scene with uh, Jimmy and Randall where they talk about the girls. Um, uh, when they're, when they're like, when Randall's kind of uh, dropping knowledge on Jimmy, showing once again um, how amazing he is at his job. Um, obviously, the scene where Jimmy and Daniels meet down there. Yeah, in the good old uh, evidence room. <laughs> the good old evidence room. 
And then two, obviously Stringer and Donette is a great scene. I know you <laughs> they like great to hate scene. on Stringer. Really, it's a great that, that, I love it. I love it. That's With the song that. playing in the background and he being his smooth, suave self. But also, Avon and D in prison. Avon and D in prison. Uh, the reason why I think Avon and D in prison is, is so important. Avon and D'Angelo, like, Avon hugs D'Angelo so much that he smothers him. D'Angelo just cannot escape Avon's love. D'Angelo would love nothing more than to escape all of the love and the protection but and is the it family. Love? Do you really consider that love? I'm not saying that it's necessarily love. I'm saying that Avon thinks that it's love. And, and, and so D'Angelo would like nothing more than to not be loved by Avon Barstale. He doesn't want that anymore, but he can't escape it. His birthright is this man's obsession with family and with doing things a certain way. And all he really wants to be is free of all of that. And every time he tries to escape a little bit, there's one person bringing him back into the reality of who he is, and that's Avon Barsdale. He tries to do drugs, a little bit of drugs, a little bit of dope, just to free his mind of what's happening to him. Avon is the one that says, no, you can't do this. This is where I need you. This is who you are. And so that scene was kind of indicative of the fact that there's absolutely nothing D'Angelo Barksdale can do uh, to escape that last name that he has. I just wondered if it wasn't tied into getting revenge, you know, for WeBay or getting Tillman off WeBay's back, the the corrections officer, would he have, um, you know, I mean, that's what led to him poisoning, getting the poison drugs uh, in the prison. But if he just would have known D'Angelo was just using drugs and to not be associated with this issue with WeBay, would he have been like, it's all about the family. It's all about the love. It's always love, D. I, I don't know, because sometimes that I, I realize that Avon does not really know how to love because given the profession that he's in, it's probably hard to for that to come from a pure and sacred and unconditional place. But sometimes that love to me is more about necessity and what Avon can get out of it as opposed to it being kind of an unconditional love. Like he knows Avon's pure motivation in reengaging D'Angelo is based off self-preservation. Because if D'Angelo folds, then that has a ripple effect on everybody. Right. And so it's just, it's sort of, it's hard to read what the real motives are when they're so tied into Avon himself, um, you know, kind of, being able to live his life. It's not just him. It's his mama. It's, tra- it's like literally everybody. He's carrying right. it for all of them. So yeah. I'm like, is that really love? Or is this about like, we just need you to be loyal? I think that he definitely loves him. I think that he, that it, all of those things are tied up together. I mean, I think he loves Stringer, but he still needs Stringer to do what Stringer is supposed to do. You know, I, I think that if there's one character out of the Barsdales who actually probably has that, it's Avon. I think, um, you know, with the aside of Brianna, because obviously she loves her son. I don't think Stringer feels those same feelings. I feel like he feels uh, he's fond of people. I think that like he uh, he's a little bit more removed than what Avon would be. But I think Avon really buys into that thing. And he believes that that love is part of what makes uh, the organization so strong at the top because there are real feelings behind it. But I definitely think he actually um, loves him. I just think that Sometimes really loving someone calls you to do something that's outside of yourself for them. 
I don't think he knows how to do that. You know, my mom used to be like, if you love someone, let them go. But sometimes that's that's the thing. That's the thing you got to do. You got to let somebody go be themselves if you truly care about how they feel more than how you feel. And he probably never got that because it's all about Avon. So now that we're here and you brought up Stringer and you had the nerve to bring up the Donetta scene as one of Donetta. the best scenes in there. It was bad. It was a good scene. But look, people, so many of y'all have been in my mentions since this podcast started. Kept telling me you're too hard on Stringer. You need to lay off Stringer. Stringer's a genius. Stringer's this. Stringer's that. Y'all make this motherfucker sound like the Bill Gates of a drug cartel in West Baltimore. If this episode does not prove to you what a truly utter irredeemable fuckboy that Stringer Bell is, I got nothing for you. I got nothing. You'll never be convinced. All right? I pointed out to y'all in episode freaking two of season one, the scope. Stringer has been scoping Donetta since then when he did that little twirl yeah. And gave her that up and down right in front of her man's face, right in front of Avon, right? Right in front of the Don of the Barksdale crew. Stringer did that. Cut to he up in her apartment. D'Angelo, I mean, the papers on his sentence ain't even fresh yet. Ain't even fresh. My man's picture frame still hanging up next to the couch, right? Donetta ain't innocent. I ain't, she is not innocent. Because what kind of grimy harlot is she to throw on that, like she wasn't slick. When you put on Sweet Thing by Mary J. Blige, you know your yeah. intent. She yeah. she she threw her intent right on out there, right? Mm -hmm. But Stringer had been scoping from word go. Then the second grimiest thing that she did, which is just unfathomable to me, was she had the nerve to bring out D'Angelo's clothes, dog. First of all, that, really? that was just stupid because I, Stringer, was Stringer just... like 6'5". Like, I don't know what she even thought. Like, he said, I'm an XL, of course. He not, she not going to be able to fit that. No. I don't know what the hell. That, what's, what's, quietly, that's a we love this show butt moment. Because it's like, look. Yeah, I had that down. You did, like, was that your, like, dude, you can, yeah, I, I, not, I, I'll let you take that one away. I'm going to leave that alone. I'm going to leave that on the, on the table for you. Right. But I'll say this, though. Okay, first of all, before we, let, let, let's, let's pause for a second. Do you, do you have any other stringer moments in this? Oh, yeah. Okay, let's get to them now. Let's okay. get to them because I'm, I'm going to break all of them down. Okay, all right. Uh, you know what? We, we, will, we will give this a full treatment, right? Uh -huh. The other stringer moment, Mr. Boy Genius, Mr. $50 credit hour community college, where he uh -huh. dumps all his cell phone stock <laughs> based off seeing poop in the pit, have multiple cell phones. So instead of that communicating to Boy Genius here that maybe cell phones, maybe they're going to be around for a while. Maybe there's something to them. He decides to get on his phone. Yeah, right. No, I want you to drop all the cellular joints. Yeah, all of them. Nokia, Motorola. Listen, this Stringer play Wall Street. <laughs> all right, so call me. Yeah. Yo, uh, String, you so down on the phone companies, man. A while back, I took a stroll through the, the pit. I saw that kid we got running things down there, uh, Poop. <laughs> Now, he got the cell phone I gave him for the business right there on his hip, but the nigga got another cell phone that only ring when the pussy call. Now, if this no-count nigga got two cell phones, how the fuck you gonna sell any more than motherfuckers? That's market saturation. Talking about some fucking market saturation? Hmm. Moron! Hmm. Is this your king? Is this your king, Baltimore? Okay. 
Is this your Is king? That... All right, you done? I'm just getting started. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Two things. First of all, let's take each scene independently. Had Stringer been over to Donette's house before Avon asked him to check See, in? See, I wondered that. See, so this is what I'm saying. I'm saying no. I'm saying that while we think that if, if it was all about just getting ass, then Stringer, as soon as D got locked up, bang, would have been over there. He wasn't. What Stringer was doing with Donette uh, is partially to get a little ass, but partially to hook her emotionally to make her easier to control. Is that he your is, very fancy way of saying Stringer's master plan was to dick whip Donetta? Dickmatize. He is dickmatizing Donetta. <laughs> he is dickmatizing her to make her do what he needs her to do. He knows that she's off the uh, D'Angelo Barstale train. She know, he knows. But he says, listen, I'm, I'm from Sierra Leone. Like, like, you, know, you know what I'm saying? I, like, this is, you know, I'm like, I, I'm about to, I'm an African. You know, like, I'm about to show you what the deal is, digmatize her in her little pink getup, and 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 then make her easier to control. Her pre-fashion over, fashion over. <laughs> her pre-fashion over, baby fat look, loved it. She's cute as hell. He is going to use that now as a trump card. He's going to be over there, familiar. So now when he asks her to do something, she's not just going to do it because it's right for the Boxdale organization. She's going to do it because she's also afraid of losing Stringer. Double whammy. Second thing. So I knew, because I've been doing this podcast with you, I know you now. I've been I've scouted you. I knew that you were going to have a problem with Stringer dumping his stock. So do you know what I did? I went online and I looked up Nokia's cell phone stock performance from the year 2003. Nokia revenues were down. They fell sharply that year. The, it was, poor sales were cited for two reasons. One reason, because of the emerging cell phone market. The second reason, it says they fell sharply. You can look this up. The second reason is because Nokia had too many bright, different color faces and people weren't into it. Cell phones had took a hit. That's market saturation. Stringer was right. You can look it up. Stringer was right. I looked it. I looked it up. I looked it up. You ain't just looking it up. You looked it up. I looked you it, double it up. Looked it. I'm here defending Stringer with Donette. I'm here defending Stringer getting rid of his cell phone stock. I and thinking that this makes Stringer even stronger and you need to cut this man a break, at least for Juneteenth, which is coming up in a little bit. Give Stringer a break, man. Stringer would never get his freedom papers from me. Never. <laughs> he would never get his, Stringer, his, Stringer, uh, his freedom papers from me. It would never happen. Because especially, mm. Stringer has had a resentment for D'Angelo since the beginning. Since the beginning. Since the beginning. To me, this was less about strategy, maybe a little bit about strategy, and try to keep Donetta close to his hip. Yeah. You know, or on other parts of him, <laughs> or whatever. Mm -hmm. This was part strategy, but it was also sticking it to D'Angelo. Yeah. But it, it was clear. What did I, I, we talked about this the last podcast. People in the wire are motivated 
by either self-preservation or revenge. And this yep. was him trying to get his pound of flesh from D'Angelo because he really wants to kill him. That's what he oh, wants he, to do. Oh, he pounded all right. <laughs> but instead, he decided, <laughs> I'm going to murder something else in the meantime. Right, exactly. Right? That's, what, that's what he decided, which is some low to house shit. What do yeah. you think about it? This man in there Savage. carrying this charge. You savage. savage you. And again, I could even believe in the, oh, they just fell into it. You know, shit happens. Two adults, sweet thing playing, Mary J. Blige, wooing them into this love cocoon. I could believe that could happen. It could happen to the, to the best of men, right? Yeah, right. But when I saw that scout in episode two of season one, I was like, you, you know what? You knew it was coming. It was coming. He was plotting on this all along. And hell, had D'Angelo been alive, he might have just moved his ass out the way in general just to get to that. Got it. And just to get it. Yeah. Just to get to that. And then. Stringer. It's a master plan. Stringer. It's a master plan. He's a master master of nothing. He is a master of nothing but fuckboyness. That's what he's a master of. (laughs) And when she she brought him the shirt, and he's like, I'm I'm an XL. And this harlot, no No doubt. doubt. What? What? (laughs) Yeah, a little, oh. a little double entendre there. You know oh, what I mean? Stringer, stringer. Yeah. I mean, right there, D'Angelo. Pictures of D'Angelo and the baby. Just right yep. there. Next right to the there, couch. The whole family. The whole Man, family. She, she let the whole female race down right there. We took, a, the, we took a major L right there. I, I freezed it. I looked at the baby to see if I could see any characteristics between him and String. I'm like... <laughs> but see, the thing is, though, with the cell phone thing... I'll accept, I'll accept your not I'll accept your receipt. I'll accept that. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he talked about the industry itself as if it were stupid, and he based that off who the Lothario of the wire pooped. That's yeah. what he based that shit off of. In elastic. It's like what? Elastic, elastic product. Yeah. <laughs> Market saturation, cause poop. Market saturation. Oh, it's yeah. market. It's not inelastic. No, that was the last. It's, mar- it's market saturation, cause pooped. Cause That's why. Mm-hmm. So, you stringer fans out there, you've heard both of our cases. You could judge for yourself. I know judge I'm for right. Yourself. <laughs> judge for yourself. We I put, know we, I'm hey, right. Hey, we putting this clip up. Judge for yourself. <laughs> judge for yourself. Free, free stringer, man. He will never be freed. <laughs> never. <laughs> not from my wrath. It will never happen, man. Uh, all right, moving on. Uh, I did. I did think this was a great, and I alluded to this earlier in the podcast. I thought this was um, a, a really great reflection of of real life. Is when Ziggy is trying to convince Nikki uh, to get involved in the dope game, and Nikki says he doesn't want to die like quote some project nigger pop for pocket change hard yeah. er <laughs> again. Um, and it wasn't that. He just casually dropped the N-word. That wasn't really what this is about. But it's just the fact that despite despite living in his mother's house with his girlfriend and his newborn and his baby, and admittedly, as he even said himself, not a pot, pot to piss in, he still believes he's better Always than the hard... lower. Exactly. Than the hard ER that's on the corner that he doesn't want to die like. And yeah. it, it is what has been the story of race in in America for a long time. Um, you know, one of the reasons why there still remains such a divide, even among people who have really more in common than they have differences is because there's a lot of working class white people who have been able to convince themselves that they are better than somebody black and brown in the same circumstance, just cause. And I mean, 
I, I say that all the time. Like where I'm from, the when you really think about it, like the community that I'm from in South Louisiana, Baton Rouge, haha. Shout out. In, shout out. Uh, it's homogenous in a lot of ways. We eat the same food. We worship the same God. We go to the same football games. We root for the same players. We, uh, you know, the music can be a lot of the same. The culture of South Louisiana is very, the only thing that separates us in that caste system is historical and systemic racism. That's the indicator that that tells who who is who. Um, and so in that thing, when you hear, and that's also the dividing line, the, the, the dividing line that people who really control society um, that's that's what they use to wedge those two communities against one another. Everybody's poor, but you're better than him, so fuck him up. I mean, and to be honest with you, that's kind of what Sabatka was pledging allegiance to right there. Listen, I'm doing bad, but I'm not doing that bad. So have some pride. I'm a, I'm still a human being, which that guy probably isn't. So. That's a very telling scene. I knew that you would come to that one right there. Yeah, and and then it's just this idea that, uh, you know, it's just interesting how the the different working classes are viewed because generally there is a lot more empathy for the Sabakas than there is, say, the Barksdales, right? Sure. There's a lot more empathy for the Sabakas because they're like, oh, working class, you know, people just trying to make a make an honest living they've been undercut by uh, work being outsourced overseas by uh, automation, by all these other things. And they're never told, and I'm not saying they should be told this, but nobody ever tells them to, well, just pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Well, why don't you learn a new skill or, Oh, that's basically your fault. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what the bar scales get, get told when they in the same situation, when they've been left behind by society, when they don't have the same, access to educational opportunities and, and other things that should just be a, a, a God given right, frankly, in who, whatever community that you live in, there's not that empathy there for them. And so it's interesting to see them go through this desperation. And that's why I said, they're always the Sabakas. What is so um, compelling about them is that they're always, they always see themselves as who they should be or who they want to be and not what they actually are. Right. I'm sure if you ask Nikki, are you a criminal? He'd probably say no. He would probably say no. Um, because he has already in his mind made it that he is better than what he considers to be a criminal, which is somebody black who might wind up getting shot on the street corner for selling drugs. He's better sure. than that. Mm-hmm. But as we will see, maybe not. Maybe. <laughs> so, <laughs> maybe. So I thought that was like a great representation of of real life. Yeah. So now let's talk about what age the best. Unfortunately, human trafficking aged the best. Didn't it though? Man. Yeah. We kind of get into the nuts and bolts of uh, as Bunk and Freeman are investigating the case. And as McNulty is investigating the case, he's talking to Randall. We kind of get into some of the nuts and bolts of human trafficking, of what it looks like, where it comes from, who the girls are, uh, what choices they think they have, what choices they actually have how they're bought and sold and what they're worth or what they're not worth, um, as it turns out. And whereas this was many years ago, some 17 years ago, it seems as if the world just kind of opened up or or, uh, discovered what a blight and a stain on humanity, human trafficking is um, just some years ago. Uh, Now, obviously, we've seen and we know 
that this has been something that's been going on for a very long time. And there have been a lot of very dedicated groups to uh, stamping this out. But as far as something that takes, that's, that's really uh, become a part of the lexicon um, of cultural thought um, and of cultural problem solving, I think it last decade was a huge decade uh, in the fight against human trafficking. I think it's the first time that I, that I heard about human trafficking in places like the Super Bowl, that I heard about human trafficking at other big events, that I heard about, uh, you know, the term became sort of commonplace. Um, you know, we talked to, you know, we talk about pimping before and all of that stuff. And now obviously that was glorified in the seventies and then on into the early eighties, but in terms of human, which is also obviously human trafficking, but in terms of human trafficking as an industry that leads to the murder um, mutilation, uh, degradation, and really mental and physical slavery of young women and men all over the world. I think last, uh, the last decade kind of was the first decade that we sort of started to understand that. And here it is being discussed in the wire um, to that in the early two thousands. In the early two thousands, mm-hmm. way before way those before. conversations were being yeah. had in a mainstream way. So unfortunately, uh, it aged the best, but. Kudos to those guys for for going into it and being able to to to, to deconstruct it for people even back then. Yeah, I mean they. It, this is one of the 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 wires hallmarks is like they're able to get it, it in and out of complex problems, show you enough of a glimpse where you're like, whoa, you know, because yeah. I think that the, what startled everybody and they did it in back to back episodes is in the previous episode when you had the Greek talking about how one girl could make two hundred fifty grand, and then the when they're at the Department of Justice those numbers and figures are are heightened even more so so that you understand why this is so profitable and such a global problem because that was the other thing is i think uh, i think people looked at it um as not necessarily being a global situation and now we of course know better because of psas and just generally having more knowledge uh, about human trafficking uh, i picked something that aged the best that was a little little more lighthearted when a little more lighthearted when uh, D'Angelo was in the library before he and Avon have their little come to Jesus. And the guy in the library says to D'Angelo, um, you know, who you like better uh, ultimate Spider-Man or amazing Spider-Man. And he's like, what's the difference? That argument been going on forever. And unfortunately it's often had by non nerds like myself who do indeed know the difference between Ultimate Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man, right? (laughs) So for the for the comic book nerds out there, that one aged exceptionally well. And so for people to understand that the Amazing Spider-Man is the old Spider-Man, that's the one that's existed since about 1963. Ultimate Spider-Man is the modern day, early 2000 Mm -hmm. uh, on Spider-Man. All right. Yeah. So there's a they difference. Marvel, Marvel tried to reboot the whole universe. Yep. They did the ultimate everything. They actually rebooted X-Force as the ultimates. They did all of this stuff. Um, and people got confused. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They, they, they like him. He was like, what's the difference? It's like ultimate, amazing, two different Spider-Mans. They want to reset it. Right. Conning. They wanted to yes. reset it. So it's just like, just so that that is a little uh, next level nerdery for you out there who I'm sure you needed it in your life actually it wasn't x-force that was the ultimates it was the avengers that they redid and made them the ultimates yeah 
they had the Avengers, they redid them and they called them the Ultimates for a while. It lasted for a while. Then they stopped it. Marvel's always doing stuff. We'll see how long. <laughs> always a step ahead. Yeah. Right, in terms of what age the worst. Why did WNBA gotta be catching strays, dude? Why does Ziggy is <laughs> Ziggy when he is uh when him and Nikki are negotiating with double G with the cameras and Ziggy goes, This is showtime, baby. This ain't the WNBA. Why they gotta catch a stray, Ziggy? Well, actually, to be honest with you, that age the best because you know people what? still. Go, I'm not here for the WNBA <laughs> slander. Not here for I'm it. Not, whoa, hey, y'all, Van is a sexist. Wait, wait. I'm not slandering the WNBA. I'm just saying that the WNBA still gets slandered. I'm not slandering the WNBA. Uh-huh. I'm saying uh, I'm not. Hey, I'm into it. I'm not slander. I'm not slandering the WNBA. I'm just saying that the Look, WNBA. Man, you gotta let us have this. Well. We took an L with Donetta, dog. <laughs> like, we took an L with Donetta. We go. I'm gonna stand on the soapbox or something on the WNBA, man. Can't be catching strays like that. Uh, good. I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> so to me, uh, that way, that age the worst. Right for me, the hilarious English scene. English. No English. My English. But fish, but fish English. English. See me sit on bumsy, See you, Ivan. Negro, you cannot travel halfway around the world and not speak any motherfucking English. English, motherfucker! That age the worst just because of sensitivities. Now, they were like... Racism. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was just funny. Like, speak English, motherfucker. You can't do that now. You can't. You put that in the movie now. It's going to be crazy. And then he with the Kunta Kinte. So, I love it, I though. I thought you was above it, dog. I, I love it, though. But that kind of... That, that age the worst. Even though it was funny. I'm not... It didn't I chuckled. Me, it was funny. Not gonna lie. I yeah. totally chuckled. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that did not... That did not age particularly well. Got a little bit of trivia for you. Oh, I know you're going to love this because this is about sure. your boy Ziggy, who's played Let's by... Oh, Jesus. I know. PJ Ranson. That is his name. Um... Don't know if you knew this or if you cared, but just so all the listeners know, um, Ziggy is known for having a large penis. That is his yeah. that is his claim to fame and that he shows at the bar all the time. If you happen to catch a glimpse of it, understand it was a prosthetic. Mm, it was a prosthetic. That. And even better, the makeup team had to keep coloring it to match his skin. Wow. And the makeup team is not made up of particularly younger ladies. And these are older women who were sitting there shading his fake penis so that it would match his skin. Um, And by the way, he kept the penis. By the way, he said PJ Ranson kept the penis. I'm sure it's somewhere uh, in a trophy case, considering they didn't win any Emmys for this show. This is perfect. Yeah. Yeah, There you go. That's trophy enough. Way to go, Ziggy. (laughs) <laughs> All right, finally, Van, who won the episode? You gonna, you're not going to say it. What? Who are you going to say? I was like, because you, you were gearing up. I was like, who are you going to say won this episode? Stringer. I knew it. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I was like, oh, hell no. I know you ain't about to say Stringer. Stringer won this episode. There's not a lot of Stringer in this episode. So disappointed. But when he's in the episode... He's dropping the fact that he was right about the state of cell phones he's in 2003. Right the he phone. was the fact that he was that he went and handled business at Donella. That scene shows you Stringer. Is. He's calculating. He's suave. He is the James Bond hint hint of drug dealers. 
That's who Stringer Bell is. He wasn't in this episode very, very much, okay? He had a low kind of appearance, but a high usage rate. You know how I like that. Um, uh, Actually, not a high usage rate, a high yield for a low. Yeah. Um, So I thought that this was a very evenly dispersed episode. It was like, it wasn't a clear cut winner. I had either it was going to be Stringer or it was going to be the van. Because the van is funny in every single scene that it is. But I, the, the amount of thought that I put in this into Stringer's astute observations and it shows him again on the street getting business done, taking care of big problems. Stringer Bell wins this episode. Yeah, still waiting on that cell phone to not be a thing. Kind of sounds like those people who thought the internet was going away, right? Yeah. It's your man, Stringer Bell, winner of this episode. For me, and it was why I didn't pick him the last episode. You did. But this, to me, was a more decisive victory for Valchek. Okay. He was the winner of this episode. Um, Easily, as you did, very well make the case for him to win the last one but because of the way he checkmated Purell Purell Burel yeah to get a better unit not just humps and to oh file this away for later say what happened to that black fellow yes Daniels who brought Mm -hmm. down the Barksdales so it is Valchek who finally even though it's for a twisted selfish obnoxious reason uh he is the one who now becomes a catalyst to perhaps getting the band back together. And so for that, I thought he won. Van, I think you should be disqualified for picking Stringer, but it's not up to me. It's okay. All right. I love it. <laughs> it's okay. I absolutely I, I'm telling you, season three, it. season three is going to be my time. That's all I know. It's going to be my yeah, time. It's it. going to be the next season. Did we, do, did we do Father This Away for later? Uh, we did too, Father Sway. Did you have one that uh, popped in your mind? I did. Just Butchie's entire existence. Father Sway. It's later. just one big Father Sway. Just uh, like it like Butchie's, Butchie's entire existence. Butchie popping up. You guys have no idea how important a character Butchie is going to become in a relatively short time. So another time that a that a character that's going to become that important just kind of plops onto the scene, it happens right there. Yeah. No, Butchie is major. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for us. Um, Van is wrong about Stringer Bell, but it's okay. I'm right. You can be as wrong as you would like about the numbskull that is Stringer Bell. <laughs> it's all good. But uh, thanks, you guys, for checking us out. Uh, definitely keep listening to us and keep watching The Wire. We will see you again next time. We definitely will. By the way, before we go, vote on the clip. We're going to cut the clip. Stringer Bell argument. We're going to put it out there. I'm riding for Stringer. Vote on the clip. Do not forget to vote on the clip when we put this out. Vote on the clip. Vote on the clip. I'm right, but vote on the clip. (laughs) Peace.